everyone and welcome to episode 88 of the Retrospectors podcast, Tyrion 2000. My name is Patrick Arthur and I'm joined as always by my co-host James Turlings. James, we return to the shmup genre with Tyrion 2000. What is this game and why have you picked it for this fortnight? I picked it because last time we played a shmup it turned out to be one of my favourite games ever probably, <laughs> so I was really hoping that uh, I could find another game in the genre to kind of you know, meet those expectations. I think that this genre has the potential to be one of my favorites ever. You know, on the last one we did with Mushihime Summer, we I really enjoyed it, you not so much. And one of the things that you disliked strongly was the kind of arcade format and how, I guess, difficult that was as a new player for you to get into. I, you know, really thrived in it. But I decided to look for a more... I guess, welcoming style of shmup for us instead of one of those, you know, bullet hell games that I really enjoyed. And a few of my friends were playing Tyrion 2000 on Discord and I watched them and it looked perfect. It was, you know, a fairly decent length. It had a lot of content. It was entirely free on GOG. To me, it checked all the boxes for what I was looking for for the second one for the show. Yeah, I will say my problem with Mushihimasama was less the inherent difficulty and more the structure and and the way in which it was presented because my problem with that game was always that it was far too easy until it got very challenging and then you lost all your lives and had to play through it again this game Tyrion 2000 seems to have a far more traditional I guess structure to what I'm used to with checkpoints and things like that and (laughs) with far less punishing uh far less punishing take on difficulty for the most part so it certainly is more what I had in mind, more what I thought we'd be doing when we did our first shmup instead of the uh, the absolutely deadly yet elegant uh, experience we had earlier on. Yeah, I mean, I, I still maintain that that game is like tight, cohesive experience that looks and sounds great today, but it is quite challenging. Quite, quite um, hostile to a newcomer yes. who's never played the <laughs> genre. And I understand that, you know, that's not necessarily out of the norm for you but for me it was a bit too much so yeah this is more what I had in mind but the interesting thing is that as I was playing through this game this fortnight and I posted about this on Twitter as well it feels strange to compare the two in some ways because although they're both technically shmups I think that they have very different ideals and objectives in the kind of uh, kind of experience they're trying to present to the player so when we'll be comparing them i almost feel we'll be talking about how and why they do things differently rather than saying one is better than the other yeah i tend to agree um i i gotta be honest i think i'll always my heart belongs to that bullet hell genre now i i think um it's gonna be really difficult for many games to sway that opinion but um I think Tyrion had a good crack at it, and we'll get into what it does well and what I think it doesn't do so well. Yeah, so for those who've never listened to us before, James and I make up the Retrospectors podcast. Each and every fortnight, we play through classic games of the past with the intention of finding out if they're true classics that have stood the test of time. We are not a nostalgia podcast. We're not here to reminisce about these games, and we're not even here to understand and evaluate these games in the context of the times in which they were produced. We played the games this fortnight, and we're going to be reviewing and discussing them as if they were a game that came out in the modern day. And obviously that's dependent on our, our experiences and backgrounds. That's why we uh, both bring up Mushihima-sama because it's a shmup that we both played recently. 
but ultimately we're we're bringing a harsh critique to this game to find which classics are the best basically so for those who have never heard of this game um Tyrion just Tyrion was first released in 1995 it was an MS-DOS game developed by Eclipse Software the version we played today is called Tyrion 2000 uh which released you know rather deceptively in 1999 and as a version it basically had a bunch of bug fixes and added a short additional episode episode 5 the main reason we did this this version is that it's free on good old games so good old games has some free games included when you first buy it and this is one of them and it's pretty hard to snub your nose at a free game no matter how bad it is um did you have any issues getting this game running james did you have to do any weird edits or did it work flawlessly for you uh worked flawlessly out of the box didn't have to make any changes to it whatsoever i found this is the case with almost every game i've played through gog thankfully so you know nothing weird here it runs in DOSBox out of the box it opens you press alt enter to go into full screen and you know good to go there are a couple of things i wanted to check with you did you play with uh with mouse or did you play with keyboard so i played with keyboard um i did look at the mouse controls briefly and discuss them with my friends apparently mouse controls makes the game like trivially easy because you can just dodge things way too quickly um, so I, you know, I just stuck with the good old keyboard for my playthrough. I played with mouse, but I feel like it's perhaps slightly more complicated than that. There's no doubting that mouse is easier, but there is a degree of, I don't think it's input lag. It's more like your ship has a bit of weight to it. So there's a bit of momentum and awkwardness with moving your ship around. And I think that while you've got more maneuverability, you cannot dodge as precisely as you could with keyboard controls. So for the most part, mouse is easier, but I don't think it's just strictly better in every single way. Um, I wasn't sure at first whether that was like some mouse input issue, but after looking online, that is just how the game controls. That is how it controls, yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's I think it's a good, good balance thing. Um, far more worryingly, I encountered a significant save corruption issue um, where my GOG Galaxy cloud save was corrupted and it kind of completely wrecked the the game for me to the you know there was no sound no music my ship was on auto fire a hundred percent of the time and i couldn't change the firing mode of my rear gun so i had to spend some time tinkering with that to fix it and ultimately lost my save data um what that means is that i didn't do episode five or the end of episode four but i did like effectively replay the earlier you know three quarters of the game through twice so i still feel qualified to talk about it but i technically haven't seen the end of this game much to my shame but at least i have a good reason this time unlike uh for that diddy kong racing episode hey james or uh the f-zero gx episode. <laughs> hey i finished the grand prix that's the real game i stand by that it's me and racing whatever games, you say james. buddy <laughs> um so james i think um with that we should be right to jump into it um we talked a little bit about this before we started, and we think the best place to start the discussion is with the structure of this game. Um, at a baseline level, this game is a shmup. You are in a ship, and you shoot lasers out of your ship, you destroy everything on screen as the screen scrolls up, and usually there's a boss at the end of the stage. But it's important to understand the context that surrounds that, because that isn't the entire game. So... This game is a continuous campaign over five episodes. You get into the first mission and there's a shop. You can upgrade your weapons with what credits you have. You don't have very many to start with. 
you can upgrade your shield, you can upgrade your generator, so on and so forth. You go into the first mission, you shoot a lot of bad guys, you get a lot of points, which double as credits for the shop. And when you finish the fir that first mission, you get dumped back into the shop screen. You've got some more money, you can get some more upgrades. And you go on and on and on right to the end of episode five. So it could be 50 missions. And every single time you complete a mission, you can you get a bit more credits and you can augment your ship in different ways. I guess the other thing to add to this is that your able to customize your ship at will. You're more building up a continuous supply of credits and you can refund any ship component for 100% cost back in much the same way you could when we first played Armored Core. So you're basically continuously getting stronger in this game in a, in a completely linear fashion. You just keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger. James, how, how did you feel about this structure? Or I guess the first question to ask, do you think there's any meaningful aspects of this structure I've left out in trying to explain it? Yeah, so the only other thing to note is that the game's story and the way that it presents itself. So um, Tyrion does have a story. It does try to sell uh, a fairly, you know, complete story over the course of its playtime. Um, and the way it does this is through data cubes. So when you first load into mission one, you have two or three data cubes available to you that you can read. They're just basically, you know, text logs that give you a bunch of story. And then during the mission, certain enemies will drop more text logs for you to pick up. And then, you know, when you're in the the shop for the next level you can read the logs then so the game's like narrative is kind of told through these logs so if you don't get you know all of them you probably won't you know have a very good idea of what's going on and then there's a whole bunch of like little extra tidbits and like lore things that you can get from them but that's basically the structure as you go into the mission you blow things up you pick up logs you pick up points and coins off the ground and then you know, you use those points to make your ship stronger and, you know, so on until the end of the game. Um, the game structure actually has this kind of thing to me that was reminiscent of Star Fox 64 when we did that. Mm -hmm. um, that there's kind of this like semi-branching path that ends in, you know, the game starts and ends on the same levels, but there are all these little, you know, alternate routes and um, bonus levels hidden throughout the game. Um, so it kind of has this like you know, branching out and then back in structure to each episode, which, you know, I thought was interesting and kind of dramatically increases, you know, your points depending on which route you go. And the only other thing I think is really important to note is that the shop's inventory changes from every level. So it's not like the shop continuously gets bigger with more options. Mm. The options change completely and it's possible that for any given weapon, you'll never see it again. So you kind of have to, you know, if you see something really juicy, you need to like sell all your expensive stuff to buy that because you might not get it again kind of thing. And that includes the secret missions. There are secret missions that have secret shops effectively. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of thing. So right off the bat, like compared to our last game, um, which had an arcade format, this one has a very almost traditional story structure with individual levels, um, which you save every single level and you just continually upgrade. Um, I imagine you much preferred this to the to the last outing, Patrick. Yeah. So <laughs> this game's a little complicated because there's a lot of um, 
a lot of its features in terms of the shop screen, the customization, how the levels play actually affect one another. And we'll do our best to keep these topics of discussion somewhat separated, but it, it might be a bit tricky. I guess on paper, I quite like this structure because it allows a continuous escalation of challenge with saves in between. And it means that once you get past something, you're past it, it's being defeated. Unlike in Mushi where you would beat something. For me, my problem was I beat I could beat level one and two without losing lives with near 100% consistency. I had to keep doing them over and over again because the later stages were giving me trouble. That is not the case here. Whenever you run into a difficult challenge, well, you're only five minutes away from the from that challenge at most if it's the boss sort of an end, at the end of the stage giving you issues. Where it becomes a bit more... I guess complicated is the way the power curve works in this game because Mushihimasama had a set power curve, a set difficulty curve. Because while there were upgrades in that game, the upgrades came at a set stream and it was basically impossible to miss upgrades. And if you lost a life, you immediately got all your upgrades back. So the game always knew exactly how strong you were and could, uh, I guess, design its difficulty and challenge around that difficulty level. This game, Tyrion 2000 structure, doesn't lend itself to a set difficulty curve, or rather the power level of your ship can vary wildly depending on how successful you have been at gaining credits. And so the nature of the experience can vary wildly, basically. Yeah, we've basically jumped from, you know, an action game to an RPG, right? Yep, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, you had set, you know, items and set ships. Now you have dozens of different possible weapon combinations, uh, incalculable different numbers of possible score values for every level. And, you know, different routes through the game. There's like so much, you know, that could be going on that it's basically impossible to design the, the game in a way that's a good challenge for every single possible combination. And to me, that's fine. That makes sense. Um, and generally what I think games do when there is this quite variety of options where it is possible for players to make mistakes and to fall behind um, is that they generally make the games on the easier side of things, and I think that is generally the case here, from, you know, my friend's experience and my experience, at least um, on my second and partway through my third playthrough, uh, I did notice that Tyrion wasn't actually that difficult of a game um, compared to, you know, when we did Mushi, which was very precision orientated. So I think that provided that you are at a certain level of skill, you can get through this game quite easy. There are a lot of difficulty options like easy and normal, but I do think that the challenge here is a bit lower to compensate for all of those options you have to available. And uh, a large part of this is once you understand that score is credits, and once you understand that credits equals power level, it's not an RPG in the sense where you need to commit to a particular build from the beginning. Because the way the shop works with you can refund anything you like at any time, all you need is more and more money. If you understand that from level one and you are super focused on getting points early on, it leads to a snowball effect. Yes, and I actually did not clue into this right away. Um, something I'll criticize this game for is that I think compared to other shmups, its scoring system 
isn't immediately obvious because basically there is a scoring number in the bottom left of the screen, but there is no score. You know, when you kill an enemy, they don't pop up with a number or anything like that. You don't you don't pick up things off the ground very often. You know, there is points around, but they're not very common. I barely noticed the score for the first like few hours of playing the game to be honest and then only when I did notice that number tucked away in the corner um actually in the opposite side of the rest of the HUD where like the health bars and all that kind of thing are on the right hand side of the screen are very visible very easy to see the score is actually in the bottom left and not particularly visible color um, compared to the background so um, once I did notice that I did immediately notice that you get like a one-to-one -one conversion of your score from the level into money. Like if I get 20,000 points, that I get 20,000 money. And from there, it became immediately obvious to me that, you know, I would massively increase my power if I just made sure to kill absolutely everything that I could. Um, and before that, I think I'd started running into some issues with like my ship's power compared to the, you know, mm. the game's power because I was kind of just focused on dodging things more than blowing things up. I hadn't really noticed that that was the main thing the game's score system was predicated on. So I think I was falling behind the power curve a little bit because I hadn't been doing that focus. On my, you know, next playthrough and the one after, the game's difficulty curve was a lot easier because I was like, you know, razor focused on high scoring. Yeah, and you raised a really good point there. One of the critical differences between this and a bullet hell game. In a bullet hell game, you're you're not trying to kill the enemy. You're trying to dodge bullets, and killing the enemies is something that happens almost incidentally, right? Like the the enemies will die. You dodge the bullets, the enemies will die. It's obviously a bit more nuanced than that. But yeah, well, killing the... enemies is conducive to not dying because they're not shooting as many bullets. But but generally, you don't. You're not trying to position yourself to kill enemies enemies you're positioning yourself to not die because a single bullet kills you so the emphasis is on not dying in this game yeah. the emphasis is on killing enemies it's not on avoiding fire because the things trying to kill you are a lot less deadly and a lot more forgiving and if you get hit a few times it doesn't really matter if you miss points scored it can affect you dramatically down the line though yeah the score is more than a cosmetic like feel good thing it is like a direct you know part of the gameplay that you need to pay attention to and it's kind of funny to me where i felt in Mushihime sama the the golden doritos were a joy to pick up um <laughs> for the points and they were you know there had no impact on gameplay um other than you know getting a life every but few you, levels. you were going to get those lives anyway just inevitably yeah. so it ended up not really mattering yeah and then here where it's really important i think visually the score could have been displayed much better to be honest yeah i agree with that the feedback's a bit a bit off and also the way the shop works you might not quite when you first start playing, it might not quite click. Um, I want to return to this idea of snowballing, though, because I think that this is where where it starts to become a problem in some way, because I think that the game is basically... What it does is it presents you with... Uh, each level has enemies of varying levels of power. And when you first start playing, you just assume that the more powerful enemies are not killable. At least I did. I was like, well, these enemies have too much health for me to kill. But then I realized that 
those enemies were killable if only I had power gamed earlier in the game. And those more powerful enemies give more valuable rewards. So if you can power game in the early stages of this game, you just literally face roll over the rest of it because the more powerful you are, the more powerful enemies that you can kill, the bigger rewards you get and so on and so forth until your max power level by episode, I don't know, towards the end of episode two, start of episode three. And everything from there on out, you are literally mowing down hordes of enemies. I feel like, I know you said that it's good for the game to be forgiving, but in some ways this felt a little too exploitable. And I think that a hard reset at the beginning of each episode, instead of it just being a continuous uh, increase in power, would have provided, I guess, a more enjoyable experience, a more balanced experience episode to episode. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. Or if they could separate the scoring system from the currency you get, like if there was a set amount of money you got at the end of each level. Or uh, it was a smaller variable, right? Like, yeah. I guess it's fine to earn some credits from killing enemies, but to make it entirely dependent on them feels too much. Yeah, I kind of did enjoy, like, on my second playthrough that I was a lot stronger because I was doing better, so there Mm -hmm. is something to be said there. I think that you see most of the ship parts by end of episode 3, early episode 4, so even... You know, so there's kind of like a limit to having, like, there's an upper limit to how much money is useful almost, which I think helps it a bit in the late game. Um, Early on, though, if you fall behind, like, and you stop being able to kill stuff as easy, you'll just start getting fewer and fewer points and, you know, it's time to restart the run. But I don't hate this entirely, I gotta say, but I don't, you know, love it, I guess. Yeah, I I guess my feeling is that I don't have a problem with the snowballing. It's that the snowballing is the entire game experience. And um, this becomes clear because I didn't actually realize it was continuous at first. So I did episodes two and three with um, just starting because you can do a fresh start on episode two and three and it gives you some number of credits. And playing the game like that is completely miserable because you can maybe kill a quarter of the enemies effectively on the screen. It is interesting that it makes you make some interesting opportunity cost decisions between you know your shield your generator and your guns but the truth is you're just not powerful enough to effectively engage the enemies and i found it far less enjoyable than actually being able to kill them yeah of course like it's really fun just to mow down heaps of enemies really quickly um i think um that there's different extra difficulty options kind of helps this a little like Mm. when you play on hard like at least when i did um i hit that point of no resistance it took a much longer time like um i was dying a lot in episode one and a fair bit in episode two and then a little bit in episode three kind of thing whereas I think when I dropped, because I originally started playing on hard, um, and then the first time I got to episode two, I got hard roadblocked on the first level. Um, I was able to get through the level fine without getting hit near the end of my try. I tried like 20, 30 times, um, and then the boss, I just couldn't kill it fast enough, and Mm. it... Um, had the ability to basically one-shot me what felt randomly to me at the time. So I I just figured I wasn't strong enough. I'd done something wrong with my customization. And it is kind of possible to get yourself into a situation where it feels like you have the wrong tools for the job. 
because the shop is different from level to level, like if you get hard stuck on a level, you know, you only have so many options that you can fiddle around within the shop at that level without having to start the game again. I still feel it's mostly based on how many credits you have. Like even the worst weapons, if you stick enough upgrades in them, can be yep. quite deadly. So I feel like it's less right tool for the job and more like I didn't earn enough money. Yeah, I did feel that way for a while. I do think there is actually a little bit of nuance in the customization system that gives it more depth than that. Did you want to talk about the customization, I guess? Uh, yeah, sure, we can jump right into it. Like I said, it's this episode's tricky because of how much everything hinges on everything else. So we've got customization to talk about, and then there's a lot of the um, more moment-to-moment gameplay, yeah. Yeah, so for structure, I guess this is important. Um... So there's actually a lot of weapons in Tyrion that you can pick for your ship. More than you'd think. Like, it's absurd. Way more than you think. It's kind of crazy, yeah. So you can equip a front weapon, a back weapon, and the back we- the back weapons generally have two firing modes. You know, one that shoots behind and sideways, um, and then you can press enter on the keyboard, and usually it'll fire forward. Some of them have this, not all of them. The, the back weapons also tend towards being more spread type weapons. It's it's not um it's not universal, but they generally are in a wider cone. Yeah, they're like a utility weapon in some ways. And then you also have a, a left and a right add-on weapon, which can either be a gun or a, a little ship that orbits around you or follows you around. And, you know, early on when you're tight on credits, I find the the decision-making on what to take to be quite enjoyable, and I really like, I like fiddling around with the different options, because, you know, you basically have the equivalent of free respecs in this game. Yeah. Um, you, you just get to play around with stuff. And some levels I found... Uh, certain loadouts worked much better than others. Um, something that I didn't use much until my second playthrough was there was these uh, side weapon options that had limited ammo. Uh, one was called like the Mega Rocket, and you only get five shots, and they recharge. You, you know, you get charges back very slowly over the course of the level. Uh, at the start of the game, you know, there's often these really big enemies that feel impossible to kill, and these mm. mega rockets can usually just kill them in one or two hits, so they're very valuable for getting extra points from things that you wouldn't otherwise kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, I managed to find two of these, um, one for each side, and then often when I would get to the boss, I would just unload both of them and give <laughs> the boss. It was really, really kind of satisfying after my first playthrough where I just had these two little orbital ships that added a bit of continuous damage in front of me and and i think that this game is a great demonstration of why i i guess why i argue for free respects james because this is a really good example of a game where rather than planning stuff out in a head or looking at a skill tree and saying i want to go into this you just load up a builder and you try it out and you kind of get an idea of the strengths and weaknesses of the different weapons and different shields and everything by actually playing the video game which is something i love like i I love that instead of theory crafting this stuff i actually get to jump in the game and do it and then if it doesn't work out i can change it or even if i just want to try something different i can try it in the game and play the game while experimenting with these different things and i do get that 
free respecs aren't always a good thing. And I do understand that there, you, you do have the downside of not developing an attachment to a build. But the upside of getting to just freely experiment with something to me just outweighs outweighs that downside dramatically. I think in this instance, it's just strictly better. Like, there's no reason to lock you into something. Um, I don't think that, you know, I there's no way to make attachment to this ship um, with, like, you'd need so many little optional add-ons and things to make building it up feel meaningful. Uh, I don't think that's really the case. Here it's about, like, you kind of do get that a bit. Because you might not see a weapon again, you kind of think twice about selling a weapon because you mm -hmm. might never see it again, especially if you like it. So I do kind of like that. It's not... It is free in the sense of credits, but it's not it's not free in the sense of like opportunity cost. There is a downside to selling a weapon. That is true, actually. And I, I guess this is a pretty good way to introduce that without punishing the player too hard. Because you, I can imagine a version of this game where you could sell your weapons back, but you'd only get 75% of the credits back, right? And then you'd be discouraged from just trying shit out. But in this game it's just like no nah, go nuts the the armored core system and it's one that i i love to bits in games like this when we did archimedean dynasty um it had this same system where um an armored core also where you can sell back for full value mm -hmm. and i think i know armored, i can't remember if armored core did but archimedean dynasty also had this missile system that um you bought missiles and then once you used them they were gone and that kind of added like um, a sink for money to leave the economy almost, which mm. kind of negated you getting too much. And I think maybe this could have used something like that in order to, uh, I guess, dampen the effect of the snowballing. But, you know, who knows? That's that's a fair point. I would say it's more like in Archimedean Dynasty, the power cap, like the best in slot equipment that you could get wasn't insanely strong because it was kind of restricted by the region you're in the way this game works where you can power your weapons all the way up to 11 means that there's always an additional power ceiling to climb right you can always get just yeah. a little bit stronger and i think that's what more leads to the issue because even if you equip all the best and sl slot stuff and ad you were still you know having a difficult fight on your hands Man, that, that game was great. <laughs> yeah, it was. I wish, you guys should listen to that episode. It's not very popular because no one's played that game, but it's good. Don't listen to the Aquinox episode, though. That was a mistake. Uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, so you, you do bring up a good point about the power. So, like, each weapon has levels to it. Um, and, you know, buying the level 2 weapon costs substantially more. Um, you can always upgrade the weapon you've got equipped. Uh, and, you know, the, the costs rise kind of exponentially. Um, I quite actually enjoyed the little, like, micro-optimization of my money. Like, mm -hmm. um, sometimes I would have to decide between... I worked out fairly early on that buying a good generator was really important, so yep. was buying good armor. Um, but also, like, 
you really did need to have a really powerful weapon to kill things to farm more money basically so there's kind of like this like balancing act you're doing of trying to work out the best cost efficiency of everything in total to try and make something that works well at least um, to start I, with <laughs> yeah and i kind of quite liked doing that um during every run basically and this is what i was uh alluding to when i talked about like starting you know start episode three with no build-up you're desperately underpowered and you need levels and everything and yeah trying to figure out the balance is really interesting the way the generator works is that if you don't have a powerful enough generator and you take damage to your shields you will not regenerate your shields until you stop firing your weapon and not firing your weapon is a good way to get killed and it's a good way to not earn more currency so what you really want is a generator that's powerful enough to fire your guns and recharge your shields at the same time, but you don't have unlimited money in those early stages. So it, it is interesting and adds, I guess, an interesting tweak to how you are actually playing the game when you have to, you know, bite the bullet and go, well, I guess if I take damage from my shield, I'm not firing for a while. Yeah, and I, I really enjoy that, basically. Um, so... In terms of variety between the weapons, I think there is quite a large variety here on offer. Like, I saw all kinds of different weapons during my playthrough. I had little flamethrowers on the side of mine in my first playthrough that I would, you know, uh, they were short range and I would have to, like, get really close to enemies, but they did insane damage up close. I had, you know, lasers that continuously fired and were super overpowered. I had, um, you know, wide shooting machine guns, narrow shooting machine guns, fireballs, uh, waves, like homing rockets, uh, massive single rockets, uh, rockets that spawned balls that bounced all over the screen. There was so many things to find, and I feel like I still have not seen every weapon this game has to offer after, you know, two and a half playthroughs. Yeah, and I think we're getting to the heart of, I guess, the nature of the experience that Tyrion offers that mushy doesn't and what these games are trying to do differently because while everything you said is true james and i agree and i think that the game does so brilliantly i just and i hate to do it but i just keep returning to this snowballing issue this issue of you getting too powerful because when you get too powerful all of these things from i guess a challenge point of view are completely undermined and irrelevant because you're so strong that the variety doesn't substantially matter now Tyrion 2000 isn't trying to be a challenging game. And I think that if you come into this game with the understanding that you're there to have fun experimenting with a bunch of cool things, you're going to have a great time. If you come into this game expecting a well-curated challenge, you will not. And this is why it's hard to criticize, because I think that it does achieve quite well what it sets out to do. But it's maybe not as intrinsically satisfying is something like mastering the challenge that Mushy sets out. Yeah, and I agree, and I think this is where we start to talk a bit about the gameplay, because I, you know, for all that I love the customization, um, I, it took me like a playthrough and a half to get over the gripes I had with the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay, which I had a lot of. Like, I started off playing this game strongly disliking it because of the way it felt to play largely in part due to all these rpg elements um and just the way the ship felt to control 
you know, now a few playthroughs later, I am starting to really like the game, actually. But I think that this comes back to what you're saying, is that my expectation of what this game was going to be like was very heavily, you know, colored by my experience with the last game, which I thought was this tight, brilliant masterpiece. And this game is not that at all. And I kind of had to, like, you know, rewire my brain to enjoy it almost. So we'll go to a music break and then we'll um we'll discuss the moment to moment gameplay. So um I, I guess the first thing to ask you, James, is what did you think of the music? Did you like the soundtrack of Tyrion two thousand? I think on the whole, Tyrion two thousand has a fucking fantastic soundtrack. There are some absolute bangers on this soundtrack. I you know, on my my two hands, I probably can't count them all. I think there are some really, really good songs here. It's all extremely high energy, uh, really enjoyable to listen to. And, it's, you know, we've been talking a bit about the menu music. Actually, my only <laughs> gripe with the soundtrack is the menu music. And it's not because it's bad, far from it. It's good. It's that um, the song that plays in the shop is actually kind of like it's got this little repetitive you know tune going in on it and it's only about a minute long and you spend so much time like agonizing over you know your how to spend your money that you just hear it on repeat you know over and over and over and it has one of these old you know midi soundtracks that are very high pitched it just i had to turn it off you know every time i got into the the menu after a certain point i just heard it a lot Whereas I loved every other song, basically. See, I, I love the menu music, even if it is a one minute loop. Um, In general, with this OST, you said it was high energy, James, and I kind of get what you mean, but it's not high energy in the way, say, uh, yes, the Oath in Felgana is a high energy, high energy soundtrack. It's like high tempo, right? It's high tempo, and I think it's almost got like these old school sci-fi you know tones to it I, I it's not quite melancholic but it's just a bit more it's a bit more wistful uh there's like two tracks that are like that there are some very high octane tracks sure. on here i guess what i'm saying is i think it captures the loneliness of space and it it, it does that in in a way that's still you know relatively uh upbeat but it's not just a full-on metal full-on full blast soundtrack um yeah, so I, I really like this OST and I really liked the menu music because I think that it taps into that that kind of empty feeling of exploring through space. So without any further ado, here is the brilliant menu music that James loathes and I love. <laughs> Thank you. 
was the menu theme. I uh, had to listen to it again while adding it into, you know, the episode. Uh, thank you, Patrick, for that. Um, but, You're uh, welcome. <laughs> it's, it's a good song. It just, I don't know if it's the right kind of song for the menu. <laughs> um, but we'll get into one of my songs later on, which I think is actually a fantastic piece of music. But for now, let's talk a bit about the gameplay. And you kind of alluded to what I wanted to start with earlier when you mentioned the controls. Um, and this was the, the first big sticking point for me originally um, was this, uh, this sense of momentum that you have on your ship. It's almost like your ship is on ice uh, in, at the beginning. Like when you stop... You know, you push in a direction. When you stop, it keeps going for a little bit. Uh, and for me... It kind of wobbles. Uh, like like it wobbles in one direction, then comes back the other way a little bit. Yeah. And and to me, when I think of shoot 'em up you know, when I think of playing Mushi um, for, you know, 20 hours and needing this, like, pixel-perfect <laughs> precision with thousands of bullets, this is not how I want my, you know, games to feel like to control. And every single time I floated over into a stray bullet, it just, it hurt me on the inside whenever that happened. Now, near the end of my, you know, current playthrough, I got a lot better at, you know, like counter tapping to mitigate the, the momentum. But kind of what this ends up meaning is that my hand is like going crazy on the direction pad constantly you know, to make up for this. And while it does make me feel better at the game, um, my hand hurts so much when I play this game now um, because you have to do that. So. Well, the, the difference is, James, when you're playing Mushy, the perfect version of playing Mushy is like playing a rhythm game or even playing something like Devil May Cry, which is you never get hit. Yes. And the game, that is an achievable goal like the, the game is set up in such a way that you yes. don't get hit if you play perfectly Tyrion is not designed in such a way that you never get hit like that is not uh, i'm not saying it's not possible because I'm, I'm sure i'm sure it is possible you know with video games people can do anything but for most people it isn't what an attainable goal you're trying to mitigate damage and i think that if we look at the way the game punishes you, you can see that it's very obvious that the game isn't trying to... You're not meant to get through Tyrion 2000 without a single bullet scratching your hull. I agree. I actually agree with you completely. Um, the game has a regenerating shield. It is completely fine to take some hits. And there are, you know, you have a health bar underneath the regenerating shield and you can find health pickups in the level. Uh, so, you know, it's perfectly fine to take a lot of fire, actually. I just, it just felt like my brain was so hardwired to, like, be furious at myself whenever I got hit. It just... I found it very difficult to enjoy until I could get over that, mm -hmm. um, which took me hours, honestly. Um, and I never you know still felt like I, I think a consequence of designing your game like this is that you don't have to design your enemy patterns and your bullet patterns as precisely and as carefully and no. you know something that i really liked about mushi when we played it is that the bullet patterns themselves were gorgeous to look at. Like, they looked mm. fantastic. Like, the, the enemy patterns had so much thought and care put into them. Even when there was, like, hundreds of bullets on screen, it was readable and understandable. And 
this game doesn't have any of that and it almost feels sloppy in a way i guess like when you're playing it sloppy is accurate let me let me reframe this in a way that maybe is more i guess welcoming to your frame of mind james think of it this way your life is a resource and you can expend that resource. So so in Mushy, the goal is to not get hit, because if you get hit, you lose a life. However, in Tyrion, your goal is to score points, get as many credits as you can. And once you realize that a single hit doesn't mean that your life is over, you can play very aggressively, getting your shield down in order to you know, basically secure kills and take damage doing so. Does thinking about it that way make the concept more appealing? Because then you're not playing sloppily, you're deliberately using your life as a way to gain an advantage. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you, and I did do that too. Mm -hmm. So I I do want to make the distinction that I'm not saying this as a criticism of the game, I think that it does achieve what it's setting out to do with all these layered systems in this way. It's just that personally, for me, it doesn't feel as good and I don't like this approach personally as much as the other approach. And I don't think I ever will, basically. It's definitely not as elegant or rewarding. Um, I will say it is a lot more forgiving, though, because while you can, yep. you know, play very you know play very aggressively and use your life as a resource the side part of the system like the the consequence is that if you're not a very good player you can afford to take some damage and still keep playing the game (laughs) so it's kind of like a buffer for for when you're not very good and you're just starting out and you're trying to learn yeah and i don't know how to explain this but kind of on my second playthrough it kind of struck me that while I vastly prefer the other way of designing a shoot 'em up, I don't actually hate this way. And if I think about it that way, it got on my nerves a lot less. Mm-hmm. And once I did that, I was able to start really enjoying the game. Um, because, you know, as you said, you can be super aggressive in this game. Um, and once I stopped, you know, once my, I guess, my concept of perfection shifted over from not getting hit to shooting as many things as possible the game you know it makes a lot more sense and is more enjoyable to play basically yeah a lot of those large enemies that you were using missiles to take out you can make what what will often happen is they'll be coming down the screen at you right and it takes a certain amount of time with your level of firepower to kill them um when i was first started playing if i couldn't kill them before they basically hit my ship i'd be like well i guess i can't kill that but then i got to the point of if I shoot at them continuously, they'll ram into me and do this much damage to my shields and then they'll blow up. And then I'll be on one sliver of my shield left, but that's that's all I need. And now I'm going to dodge with just my shield left. And yeah, I once I came to grips with it that way and started viewing in that way, it was less of a problem. But I do agree that mushy, like Devil May Cry, like a perfect rhythm game, is always going to be the more elegant system, right? It's always going to feel feel nicer to strive towards true perfection. Yeah, there's like an art to that game yeah. that I felt like is missing here. Yeah. Um, you mentioned it just now, ramming. Um, that is something <laughs> that is a big part of Tyrion 2000. Huge so, part. Yeah, so one thing that the shield system kind of means is that oftentimes if your shield is big enough and your generator and you're fairly good at dodging you're basically never 
you know, you're not going to die to fire too often unless you let the screen have too many enemies and then you just get overwhelmed with bullets. Um, because you, you'll take a lot of stray shots in this game and you'll regenerate them really fast. Um, the big killer actually is not bullets, um, it's collisions, which generally in my experience will just kill you full to zero if you take it at a bad angle. Like in a second. It, it takes maybe half a second for you to die from a ship yeah. ramming you. It's not long at all. Yeah, and on my first attempt at hard, which you know failed miserably, I got stuck on the first level of episode two um, and the, the enemy rams into you. It's a boss that has lots of health and it tries to boost at you and if it does, you'll just instantly die. I tried, you know, as I said, like 10 to 20 times um could get through the level no problem at all because of my shield and then would just explode to one attack randomly it felt very bad i would say 80 percent of my deaths were from collisions yep. of one kind or another and it's not just like when a boss literally rams you there are specific enemies that are just aggressively sailing around the screen or come at you at odd angles and dodging enemies flying into you is a lot harder than dodging the bullets and it's a lot more deadly it also is another thing which the snowballing effects because if you're doing well and you have the ability to kill enemy ships easily then your likelihood of dying from ramming is a lot lower because you'll kill them before they come to you if you're struggling and can't really kill ships then ships are deadly projectiles that will wipe you out if you're not paying attention yeah, and I don't have a problem with this being part of the game. I don't like that that one boss intentionally, you know, tries to ram me when it takes up half the screen. But, you know, I'm mostly okay with this being a thing to watch out for. I think that the game needs something like this to be kind of scary when you have a shield. Um, I would just... I guess I would err on the side of having these at the start of a level just because when you know it's right at the end it just causes you to have to replay the level over and over to get to the hard bit and I don't like that. So I have a theory on why those boss ramming doesn't actually feel good and it basically boils down to those attacks aren't signposted. It's not like you get a flare and then they ram you it just feels like these ships have no gravity and they're moving around randomly. And you just have to memorize their patterns. What what modern games do is that if they're going to do a deadly attack on you, you get warning through a signpost that that attack is coming. And then you can be like, okay, this is, attack is coming. Let me move out of the way. Here, it just happens. So you're just shooting away them merrily and then they ram you. And you're like, well, I didn't really have any kind of reaction window to this. It just happened. And because I wasn't aware that this was a thing that could happen, I was guaranteed dead because I was shooting them from this angle on the left instead of this angle on the right. Um, if it had signposting, James, I reckon it would feel it would feel a lot less bad because it would feel fair. Yeah, it doesn't feel super unfair. I'd say most of the time it's fine. Like, most of the time I feel it's my fault. And there are these some specific instances where it feels a bit like, uh, I wish this was different. Yeah, there, there was one level I had a lot of trouble with. I think it was on episode two, where there's kind of like these two things on the side of your screen and these two red balls are moving in between them and they're getting faster and faster and yep. faster. And I just could not figure out how to avoid them because they seem to be moving completely erratically in between those two things. And that counts as a ram attack that kills you instantly. That level probably took me 15 to 20 times and I was dying to that 
every single time until I finally found a path through what seemed like random bullshittery. So yeah, the the ramming is fine some of the time, but other times it's just like, man, my hitbox is too big. There's not enough room on the screen. Yeah, I wish my hitbox was this tiny little circle in the middle of my model. <laughs> <laughs> It'd make things a lot easier, yeah. It, it is, there is this thing going on where mushy by virtue of its screen orientation basically just gave you more reaction time because with you know the arcade cabinet vertical screen you just have more time this flat flat screen with it flipped the other way just feels a lot of the time like you've got no time at all to react yeah and i think that's why the vast majority of shmups use that vertical orientation as opposed to this which is you know a more traditional pc monitor with you know, uh, some info on the side. Eh, you don't have a heap of time. I found that the game was mostly designed in a way that that wasn't too much of a problem. There were a couple of specific mm-hmm. instances where I think they maybe could have used a bit more testing, um, but on the whole, it was okay. Um, and, you know, when it, when it happens, you lose two to three minutes because of the way the saving and checkpointing works. You're Once again, the game is erring on the side of being forgiving to the player. Like, so when while it is bad, I think it feels less bad when you lose two minutes of progress versus 15, like, like would happen in Mushy. So it's something that I'm not furious about, just a little annoyed. Yeah, absolutely. And there is one thing about the gameplay that I objectively hate with a passion. Uh, No one can Mm -hmm. convince me that this is a good thing. Um, In some of the levels, there are these sections where your ship will randomly speed up massively, (laughs) and then the screen will flood with enemies and bullets, and you just have to, like, dodge for dear life. And sometimes enemies can ram it. Like, there are big enemies that you'll smash into while going at light speed. It's just... It feels so unpredictable and random, and I hate it with a burning passion. Every single time this happened, I like almost closed the game when I died to it. <laughs> I agree. I was going to say skill issue, but I I agree. <laughs> I think it's bad. There was um there was this one cool level where the uh where the boss comes in, and you kind of get previews of the boss throughout the level. Like he comes in through the left side of the screen, then the right side of the screen until you finally find him at the end. And I thought that was quite a cool level. I don't know if you know the one I'm talking about. Uh, which no, actually, it's a big big purple ship, and the idea is that you basically keep keep encountering him he's an invulnerable enemy when he pops up earlier and then you finally fight him at the end and uh i thought that was a good implementation of it because he took up half the screen every time he appeared but it was moving slowly enough that it didn't feel unfair Mm -hmm. um let's talk about like levels then i guess um so i was actually quite impressed at the sheer variety of levels in this game like there was a lot of unique art assets and like different looking places there was of course you know, they reused them a bunch in the later episodes, um, but I thought that there was a lot of very unique levels in this game, particularly the bonus levels, I think, end up being uh, quite radically different to a normal shmup level, um, and I thought that added quite a bit of variety to, you know, the feeling of progression throughout the game. Yeah, and it's it's also in the in the aesthetics. Like, I think my favourite mission of them all was this one where... Um, there was basically there was artillery being fired at you. It was almost like a futuristic kind of World War Two planet. So you had fighter jets and you had um, 
you had these big boats and then you had these artillery things. And as you move through the level, oh, and those big blimps. And as you move through the level, you keep getting closer and closer to this big boss that's been firing this artillery on you the entire time. Um, yeah, I, I did find that episode two with its space levels was kind of a little boring. It was just a lot of levels in open space. Uh, but for the most part, I agree with you, James. I think that there is a good amount of variety as you move through um, through the five episodes. Yeah, and like to give you examples of like weirder levels, I guess... Um... There was one that was almost like on a racetrack kind of with these like traffic cones to the side that you mm. had to like weave between and like there were these like car shaped ships. This game's got like a really quirky sense of humor and lots of weird stuff will happen occasionally. Like there was uh, a shop where I had a ship shaped like a carrot. Uh, there was some vegetable guns, for example, that you could get. There's a lot of weird stuff in the bonus levels that... um kind of mixes the gameplay up a lot of them are very score based like they'll have these very particular enemy configurations that almost look like you're playing space invaders stuff like that mm. um which i kind of thought was neat for the bonus levels and was happy to do one every few levels they they did they did feel like an opportunity to just get ahead of the power curve yeah though. i was like maybe, maybe i'm just too practical but i was just like my god i need to do well on this bonus stage and then i <laughs> I can clean up the rest of the, the rest, rest of, of the, the game level. yeah me too i was yeah. like oh it, it makes you try really hard on these silly stages it's really funny um yeah, the um the level that really stands out to me and it's not even like it's a pretty understated level it's like this level with all these bubbles like it's got this like weird red theme to it and it's very kind of spooky and alien i don't know if the one you know the one i'm talking about like Gygus? Like the one with the mouth? The one with the mouths? Yes, I think that's the one I'm talking about, yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing is, you and I maybe were on different secret level paths, so it's possible we were playing completely different levels, James. That's true. One thing um, I guess I will dock against the game is that I think these are very, like, video gamey levels um, in a game that's trying to have a cohesive-ish story. I never really felt like any of the places I was in was anything but a, like a video game level with randomly generated mm -hmm. enemies. Like not, nothing on the ground felt like it made sense. It was just there to be an obstacle for me, the player. There was no like, te like you know, sensical looking town layouts or anything like that. It was just a level for me to shoot things in it's interesting you say that because mushihimasama's you know mech bugs feel more realistic and grounded like i yes. can envision them existing more than these you know far more ordinary sci-fi weapon emplacements because i agree with you james and part of that is the level of detail like mushi had a tremendous attention to yes. detail with its graphics like that game is incredible it's gorgeous yeah yeah it's gorgeous with its presentation and animation this is an older game it it just i mean back in 1994 you know these dos games like i think that it has a solid aesthetic and art style yep. but it lacks the detail that that the newer newer bullet hell games do it also just has like a massive amount of levels right like mushihime was able to do that because it only has five levels imagine like i mm -hmm. imagine the budget in that game was a lot probably more than any of the other games they've done i'd imagine um imagine doing that for a game this big for Tyrion 2000 that would be insane so 
you know, I don't expect the game to do it, but it is very noticeable when you're going through. And it is, it makes a, I guess, a hard to follow story even harder to follow in a way if it doesn't visually, you know, give you feedback on what's happening in the narrative. Should we should we talk a bit about the story, James, or do you have any uh, some more gameplay related notes? Well, how about this? How about we go to another music break and then we can get into a bit about the story and the data cubes and that part of the game. Sounds good to me. So I think that the song I'm going to pick is an absolutely fantastic piece of music. Um, it is called uh, Gyges. I think I'm pronouncing that. Gyges, will you please help me? It plays on one of the weirdest levels in the game. It's this very spooky level filled with spikes and purple and weird body parts and body horror and i think it's an absolute banger so hope you guys enjoy Guides, will you please help me? Probably one of the best tracks we've done on this show, in my opinion. I really, really like it, just like the rest of the soundtrack, except the stupid menu music. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna say I can't be that high on the story, however, which the game tries to tell, I think, um, but it ends up being a very scattered mess due to, you know, the nature of the way it's told. Uh, and even I think if I got the full picture, I don't think I would have enjoyed it that much either. So the main thing about Tyrion's story is that it's told in data cubes, as I mentioned, which you find in the levels. You'll get some data cubes automatically, which will give you a baseline level of what's going on. But you, to get most of out of the story, you're going to need to collect a lot of these things. and. From what I collected and what I read, I don't think the story is very well written. Not only not well written, it is boring. I, I tried. And listen, I love environmental storytelling. Like, it's my favorite way to do storytelling. But even I could not stomach reading more than the first few of these. I think we, we were talking about this a little bit before, and we were trying to figure out why it was so unengaging. And I think there's a few factors. The first one you brought up, James, was that there's just too much text in each one of these data logs right yeah they just all feel like they're three times longer than they need to be like one thing that i do like in storytelling is when there's lots of you know levity and like 
almost unnecessary bits added in because having a bunch of unnecessary information makes it feel more alive to me and more natural. When you have a story that's cut down to the absolute minimum, it feels very artificial to me, like somebody has curated this. I can feel the editor hanging over the writer's shoulder. But like, for example, in here there is a data log that talks about all the different restaurants on one of the planets and it's told in this like comedic way or at least it's trying to be and it's like it's so long like they make the joke in the first paragraph and then they make it like 20 more times and it just kills the joke and it kills the enjoyment of this like entire thing and i think critically with that when games do this well, and a couple of examples are Police Noughts, uh, which we did ages ago, and Archimedean Dynasty again, is that this fluff kind of flows naturally from the world building. So when we did Police Noughts and you were reading about the different things in a, in a lounge, it was all about how it was like that a couch was created specifically to exist in Zero-G, or this particular food was a result of agricultural farms in this part of the society. When we did Archimedean Dynasty, it was about this drug becoming widely available because in this Middle Eastern surrogate uh, underwater base, it was more widely available and so on and so forth. The world building fluff in this game feels totally unrelated to anything that you're reasonably interacting with or anything unique to the circumstances of this world so why would you care about it and i certainly didn't it's also just not well written it's not like snappy it doesn't you know it's not easy to read like i found myself you know forcing myself to read a lot of it because of that like it's not i tried yeah like, I, I really, really did. did as well i tried to get lots of them i tried to read them um it just it was boring and then I guess the other problem I had is that Tyrion 2000 features a completely silent protagonist who I think he has a single or maybe one or two data logs written by himself in the entire game. And those are like near the end of the game. You hear nothing about the character at the beginning. And something that they try to pull on the player early is that they kill the main character's parents in what is supposed to be, I guess, an emotional moment. But I don't even know who the main character is. Like, he has... He may as well be Doom Guy, right? Yeah, basically. It's very... It's not good. It's not good at all. It's really boring. It's overly wordy. It's best near the end when it's being really stupid, basically. Um, because then it's at least a little entertaining. When when I think of, like, Star Fox 64, like, Fox isn't necessarily a character with a, an enormous amount of personality, but through the small amounts of interaction he has with his comrades, you grow an attachment to him as a character, right? Yeah, he's quotable, he's, like, likeable, you know, he's got personality traits. I, none of the characters are like that at all here. Yeah, I struggled to think of the characters. And yeah, I think that nothing, I can't say be more down on this story to say that it bored me. Like I've had serious problems with games like Cave Story Story, which, you know, <laughs> very big problems with that game. But that story didn't bore me. This story bored me to the point where I didn't want to engage with it. So yeah, the story is Crapola. And um, 
I think it would be better if these data cubes didn't exist, honestly. I mean, the best thing that I can say about it is that it's completely optional and you you don't <laughs> you don't have to interact with it at all. And that is a really good thing, actually. Uh, if this was forced on the player, it would make the game so much worse because you can <laughs> skip it and engage with the meat of the game, which is everything else. It's actually, I don't think, that big of a detriment to the game overall. That is true, yeah. So that's a nice thing, but yeah, it's terrible. There's one more thing that I think is important to talk about with Tyrion 2000, and I think is fascinating to talk about um, from our perspective as people who try to re review games from a modern perspective, and that's the level of secrets and hidden content that Tyrion 2000 has in it, because it's not an insignificant amount. Um, and all of it is basically rewarded to the player in messages that give you passwords, which is something that I haven't seen done in years. Uh, but there is a lot of content. Like, if I was a kid playing this game for the first time, I would have a notebook filled with little passwords that give you all sorts of things. Like, there's difficult, there's like six difficulties. There's all of these different modes for the arcade game. There's a Scorched Earth mode. There's a Gallagher mode. Yeah, there's different games in the game. Uh, there's all sorts of little secrets. Something that I didn't notice until very, like, recently is that every ship in the game actually has a secret, like, Street Fighter 2, like, input code, actually, that does a special move. Like, if I'm flying my ship and I do left, left, right, right, up, shoot, down, or something like that, it'll do, like, an attack. Most ships have multiple of these, like, yeah. three or four. Yeah. Most ships have multiple. It's insane. It's like the concept in Castlevania Symphony of the Night, but there's three to four times as many moves. Yeah, and you get these by, you know, collecting the data logs and finding the, you know, the information in them. Um, so there's all this kind of stuff hidden through the game. There's, you know, secret bonus levels. There's everything, right? And it's kind of funny because I think I would be much more down to interact with this stuff if it wasn't, you know, presented in a password system because what what tends to happen is that I'll get a password and I'll forget to write it down and then I'll go to look it up and then that password will be in a list of with all the other ones on some game website and I'll see all of the other ones before I'm supposed to get them and it kind of ruins the progression instantly. Whereas I think a modern game would have like a save file and like an encyclopedia with all this stuff. This is actually a really interesting point you brought up, James, and I'm glad we're talking about this. I think that this kind of thing, this bonus content, is exactly what a lot of people would be nostalgic for. And I can imagine as a 12-year-old playing this game before the internet's a thing, and it's just like the game seems to be this endless well of possibilities, right? Yeah. But I think for the people playing it today, if you want to go back and play Tyrion 2000 today, this wealth of bonus content that would have been so meaningful at the time of the release is a tiny little gimmick that you probably won't even interact with. Yep. Because why are you playing a version of Scorched Earth and Tyrion 2000? <laughs> if you're going to check out this game, it's probably going to be to play the main game. You're going to play it through and then you're going to be like, yeah, that was an all right experience. You're not going to poke around the edges and spend hours doing these Street Fighter combos. So while I can see this would have been valuable at the time of the release, from a modern perspective, this stuff is 
either non-existent or at the very least a gimmick you mess around with for a very short amount of time yeah and i kind of agree like i just realistically wouldn't engage with any of this stuff other than like the difficulty levels and maybe um playing around in arcade mode with the different ships because that actually seems like cool content I would, wouldn't be bothered with all of the, you know, the chip combos and stuff like that. You don't need it to beat the game. It's already, you know, fairly easy if you focus on good scoring. Um, but, you know, I think some of it is pretty neat. I, I do kind of like it, like it being there. I, I don't want to be too much of a downer. Like, it's cool that it exists. I'm just saying that realistically, I don't think it significantly shifts the needle on on evaluating the value of this game i don't know it kind of endears me to the game a bit like i like the game just that little bit more because it has all this stuff but even if i'm not gonna engage with it it's there so sentimental james yeah a little bit um <laughs> but i imagine there'll be some people who appreciate this yeah i i get where you're coming from it is a bit like castlevania castlevania symphony of the night had all that hidden stuff in it that that's fun and and the existence Existence of it is fun and cool, even if for the most part you're not really diving into the depths of it. Mm. Alrighty, so I think we've basically spoken about the main topics of this game. So Patrick, did you want to give us your final impressions on Tyrion 2000? Yeah, so basically what I think it comes down to is that Tyrion 2000 is a good game. It's a fun game to run through once, provided you come into this with the right perspective and mindset. This isn't a tightly crafted, elegant game. This isn't a game with a good difficulty curve. This is a sloppy game, but it's one that's a lot of fun to mess around with. The fact that you can just try out infinite different loadouts at will, change them around, play around with it, means that you're going to have a lot of fun just stomping through this game once or twice. I have significant problems with the structure of this game because the problem is you just get too strong and then you just vomit all over the keyboard and you still win because you've reached a power level that surpasses what the challenge that the game is meant to present to you. But the core of this experience isn't about having a challenge. It's about getting in there and messing around with the hundreds of weapon combinations. And from that perspective, it does it well. So overall, I recommend Tyrion. I think it's a good game. I think you have a good time with it, but I don't think it's a great game. And I don't think that I would even say that it's a mandatory game for people to play. And it doesn't really make me excited about the shmup genre. It doesn't feel like this is the one. This this is truly the greatest one of all time. I think I'd want a version of this that has a tighter control scheme and a more a more well-regulated difficulty curve one way or another. And if that can be united with the customization and messing around that Tyrion offers, I think that would be the shmup that I that I hold in highest esteem. Um, I'm glad I played it though. I'm glad we got a a different perspective of the sh of the shmup from Mushi, and now I feel like I've got some uh, ground under my feet when talking about the genre as a whole. So my feelings on the game are strongly coloured by the fact that I think that I'm just always going to prefer the tighter, more you know, artful experience that Mushi uh, you know gave, and I am very eager to try more games like that in the future. That said, once I was able to get over, you know, my hang-ups with this style of shmup, 
I did actually have quite a good time, and the more I play it, I find myself liking Tyrion 2000 more and more. Like Patrick said, this is a fantastic game of customization and creativity. You get to play around with dozens of weapons. There are so many options. Lots of them feel viable. Lots of them are overpowered and just fun to use. Uh, there's lots of different bonus levels to find. You know, you can play through this game multiple times with all sorts of different configurations depending on how well you do. I think Tyrion, you know, does what it wants trying to do quite well. I don't think it's a perfect game by any means. I think that there, I wish the controls were tighter. I wish that the difficulty was a bit more, you know, evenly balanced. Most of all, I wish that it had a good story because, you know, if this game as it is now, the story was good, I think I would really like Tyrion, but as it stands, I just, you know, I merely like it. I don't think this kind of shooter will ever be my jam completely, but I do, you know, like what I see here. And, you know, it helps that it has a fantastic soundtrack to go along with it, you know, something that's truly excellent. So. You know, I can definitely recommend this game. It makes it a lot easier for me to recommend because it's free. Um, if you've never played a shmup mm. before, I, you know, have no issues with saying give this one a go. Um, if you're, you know, concerned about spending money on something you might not like, there's a huge, you know, point in its favor. I didn't love it. But, you know, the more I play, the more I like it. So, um, you know, was happy we played it this fortnight. I wonder, I wonder if there is a version of the, this game that is a bit tighter. I'm sure, I'm sure there is. I mean, the original game was released in 1994. I, I don't think this genre evolved into Bullet Hell. I feel like Bullet Hell was almost a spin-off from this genre. Yeah, almost. I, I don't know. Like, all the really popular ones are kind of in that style, but there is a lot of games out there. Um, I, you know, was going to play a few more on my Switch because the Switch is actually a massive shmup machine at the moment. Um, I've ordered a couple of, you know, the, the, the side-on stands so you can play from top to bottom. Um, for us and seems I, perfect yeah, yeah and i was gonna give crimson clover a go because i hear extremely good things about that game um but you know we'll see but i think that the structure is solid like if they do a, like i like this idea that you need to play through the game multiple times to get the full picture of the story i like the customization uh, you know just maybe some modern you know touch-ups and you know they could just do this again but better right yeah and it feels close like i said i yeah i just love the messing around with all the different builds like that that to me is is the best this is this is the free respect dream <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i just when it comes to actually playing the game i just don't I often don't have as much fun with it as I'd hoped, I guess. Yeah, me too. Which is a bit disappointing, yeah. Yeah, it's because the bosses don't have that amazing, you know, soundtrack when they load in. Yeah, that, that uh, kick snare of the drums. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thank you so much for listening to us talk all about uh, Tyrion 2000. We are the Retrospectors Podcast. This was episode 88. If you want to listen to 87 or maybe 86 more episodes of Brilliance, please go to our website, which is rspodcast.net. It's got all of our episodes, a bunch of articles that James and I have written about games old and new. It's got all of our links to our social media stuff, most important of which is our Discord server. We would love if you would drop by and join our Discord server, um, whether it's to drop us a recommendation, give us some feedback, or just join the conversation. Um, we love talking about games old and new. That's why we do the podcast, and uh, we would love to hear what you think. 
Um, yeah, that that about does it. So I get to pick the game for this next fortnight, and uh, because James has been indulging in his nonsense, I'm going to indulge in a bit of my nonsense. So I've been spending some time looking for some more Slav Jank. Unfortunately, most Slav Jank games tend to be long, but someone recommended me one called Gorky 17, which is a Slavic tactics game. Um, with a with a story that is under 15 hours length, so we'll actually be able to play it in a fortnight. Had you ever heard of this game before, James? Absolutely not. Um, and I don't think I would have unless <laughs> you had mentioned it, but I'm down to play a tactics game. We haven't done one for a while. Last one was probably Panzer Heroes General. 3. Oh, yeah, that's right. That game. Yeah, I mean, Panzer General is more of a strategy game, I guess, but it had elements of tactics. But this is a, you know honest to goodness tactics game where you control a squad of people and have to uh deal with you know horrors the the horrors that emerge from i think some horrible lab i'm actually really vague on the details with this game and that's how i'd like to leave it actually when i go in without spoilers i know that the english voice acting is apparently horrendous i'm i'm debating whether to use that or use subtitled because you know after doing House of the Dead, awful English awful English voice uh, acting does have its appeals. That game was uh, special but, in that regard, I think. But yeah, it, this game, it looks intriguing. It looks like it tap, taps into that horrible atmosphere. Uh, I shouldn't say horrible atmosphere, that horrific atmosphere that I love in these games. So I'm looking forward to giving it a try. And no doubt it will be a miserable experience, but but that's what you're signing up for when you play Slav Jank. Yeah, I, I can't wait for it to crash like constantly and <laughs> that kind of thing. But um hopefully you won't lose your save file this time. So I can't, you know, use that excuse every single time. But at least I sent you that screenshot verifying my data corruption. Yeah, it was indeed quite something. <laughs> Alrighty, so uh, we will see you in a fortnight for Gorky17. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you around. Bye.